This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and your gumbers. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Today, the Albanese government has started its process to phase out the live export of sheep from Australia by sea. Now, it's all kicked off in Western Australia this week because the industry is based there. And as there's been stakeholder meetings where emotions have been running pretty high. I hadn't thought of the mental issues that were brought up, particularly by the girls that were there and the education aspects and those sort of things that are going to compound with the reduction in sheep numbers, employment within the district. And there's been a long-standing perception, deserved or not, that farmers are tree clearers. But some are working to buck that stereotype and proving that farming and forests can actually mix. Globally, people are starting to look at how they can address it. Um, And it's an important part of our sustainability story is to um, show that we're doing work in that space to try and um, make improvements. But first today, questions are being raised in the ag industry over how reliable satellite technology is for farming. Because if you missed it, there was a British satellite and it had an outage on Sunday and it resulted in a temporary loss of GPS services. Now, this didn't just affect Australia, but also New Zealand as well. And while most of us use GPS for finding our way or for tracking a run or a ride or something like that, in agriculture, it's actually used in precision farming for sowing crops, for fertilising and for spraying as well. So big Actec brands that make this equipment, so think about John Deere, Case IH, Ag Leader and Trimble, they all got caught up in this. And um, New South Wales farmer Justin Everett grows wheat, canola and barley and he was affected by this outage. It means I'm going to have some really wiggly lines up the paddock. Uh, I haven't, haven't been in a tractor without auto stiff for probably 15 years, so uh, it's, it's going back to yeah, probably the 90s really. Apart from just the unattractiveness of wiggly lines, how does that affect your production, does it, does it have long-term implications for you? We'll find a way to put the crop in. It, it could have longer-term implications if um, we don't have all that available to us. And what are you using as a workaround? Probably go back to a bit of sticky tape on the window or <laughs> or maybe the old ear we set up on the front of the tractor. Pretty much just follow, look, look down that tape all day. So it's, uh, it's a lot harder on, on your mental side of things. That was New South Wales farmer Justin Everett speaking there to David Clawton. Now, the phones were running hot for Andrew Whitby at Precision Ag Solutions based in Toowoomba in southern Queensland with farmers needing support. Now, he explains why it's caused such an issue for them. We're probably so used to the technology now that, um, you know, going backwards in terms of trying to have our work match up with what we have been doing with really fine accuracy just doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, humans just aren't as good as GPS technology as far as steering goes. That's it, just a, a fact that's out there. Um, we can't steer as good as GPS can steer. So that is a factor. 
it's just hard to um, go backwards in in technology, I guess. So what can those people do? You can drive your tractor with and, and hang on to the steering wheel, can't you? Yeah, absolutely, you can. Um, and if you're in a non non critical situation, no, that is always still an option. There is a couple of options for a couple of different people out there that are less accurate options. Like uh, they can go back to free to air GPS in a couple of uh, different branded situations to maintain the accuracy. They've um, yeah, they're kind of stuck at the moment. Andrew Whitby, does this happen often? Uh, no, no, it's not a common occurrence. Um, I haven't seen this in definitely the last five years. That was Andrew Whitby at Precision Ag Solutions talking there to Amy Phillips. So the satellite is actually back working again after this outage, but how did the Australian and New Zealand ag industry find itself just so reliant on one satellite in orbit? Associate Professor in Electronics and Communications at the University of Southern Queensland, Andrew Maxwell, said these sort of um, occurrences just aren't that common. Not not particularly common. So we're talking about carrier-grade equipment. I mean, um, we're dealing with equipment that's that's designed for military purposes. It just needs to work. You know, 99.99999% uptime. Very highly unlikely that these sorts of things occur. But again, they do occur because you've got well, let's face it, it's a satellite, it is out there in space. You can trip microprocessors, you can do all sorts of things. There's cosmic rays effective. They are, they are protected, but these sorts of things can happen. There can be glitches in the communication. Um, and so there, there are certain instances where something will get tripped or there'll be a bad packet or there'll be some sort of uh, accidental instruction sent and the satellite does something different to what you intend. It does occur highly unlikely, as I say, that they normally have these systems, a carrier grade, military grade, normally a 99.99999% uptime, but it does occur because nothing is perfect. Understandably, this can't have been great press for the company involved, but why were they so reliant on one satellite for such a diverse range of GPS services? So the way uh, that GPS works, so GPS is Global Positioning System. We have the old GPS system, which many people know as they're driving around in their cars. Uh, what's happening is is you've got a little receiver in, in that particular unit. It's not a transmitter, it's only a receiver, mm-hmm. and it's listening to particular frequency channels uh, that these satellites are transmitting. Each satellite, each GPS satellite, has on it a, an atomic clock, and it is sending out a signal that's providing timing information to your receiver and then simply by knowing where the satellites are in space and we can do that we can we can provide tracking information to that that's actually set as part of the uh, the packet data that's coming down from the satellite through triangulation we can work out where you are on the planet now the issue is that uh due to the way that it was all designed, it isn't always necessarily precise. The consumer version is, is good to maybe 10, you know, 5 to 10 metres. The military system is good down to a metre or beyond. But for precision farming, we need to be down at the centimetre grade. We need to know where that weed is, where is the track for my, uh, my planting of, of my seeds. And so what we do is provide an augmentation service. So this particular satellite provided an additional timing channel that then was used alongside existing GPS channels to provide even further precision so that the uh, the farming systems and, and anyone using that service could actually get down to centimetre or sub-centimetre grade precision or accuracy when they're positioning their equipment. But it is a good question. We do need to make sure that we have backup. So for precision farming, 
they could have reverted back to ordinary GPS services. But again, those services may not have had the precision required for farming application. That was Associate Professor in Electronics and Communication at the University of Southern Queensland, Andrew Maxwell, talking there to Amy Phillips. Now, the company has actually released um, a statement. So Inmasat has put out um, saying that the satellite suffered a partial loss of power, which invoked automatic procedures on the satellite that led to the suspension of services. Now, they have said that they're continuing to work to optimise performance and address some of the specific residual issues, and they have apologised to all impacted users. And they're also saying that a lot of these impacted services are actually going to be moved to their new high-performance satellite in the coming months. From the paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio. So as part of their election promises, the Albanese government committed to phasing out live sheep exports from Australia by sea. Now, this primarily affects Western Australia, where the industry is based. And it's all kicked off this week because the panel consulting on this phase out, they held a series of meetings around the state and it resulted in some pretty heated discussions and a lot of motion coming to the front during these meetings. So uh, Michael Humphrey farms about 160 kilometres north of Perth and he attended one of these sessions. The family have exported Weathers Live for 50 years and uh, it's very significant to the industry. What was the level of anxiety about the future of the industry in the room yesterday at Mora? My judgment is that it was quite elevated. I've chosen the words deliberately. Uh, I was surprised. People are concerned about the clearing last year's production. Uh, You know, it's the middle of April. There's no rain in sight in this part of the world. But much more serious than that is people are quite concerned about spring production parameters. The numbers of sheep we're likely to breed this year are quite significant. The ewes are as fat as buggery. The rams are all out. The production parameters are set for the spring. So what happens if it's a dry spring? And there's no change in slaughter capacity. And we're operating in 22. We've had fewer ships than we had in 21. We ourselves are carrying three quarters of our weathers unshipped, which we would have expected to ship in September last year. So that was sheep farmer Michael Humphrey. Now, another person to attend one of the sessions was York sheep producer Peter Boyle, who farms about 100 k's east of Perth. Now, he says he came away thinking about how shutting down the sheep trade would have a long list of flow-on effects to regional communities. I hadn't thought of the mental issues that were brought up, particularly by the girls that were there and the education aspects and those sort of things that are going to compound with the reduction in sheep numbers, employment within the district. Personally, we've had it analysed how many people we're responsible for employing. Just with the number of sheep that we do, there's seven extra outside our family. Truck drivers, shearing, people that come and do contracting for us and stuff like that. So those seven people might have a job with us. So they're they're going to have to look somewhere else for a job. And so that that's the, and I'm only one of probably ten of us in York that buy a lot of sheep in York. Growers in York probably buying a hundred thousand sheep at least each year to fatten up on stubbles, uh, and then send them off to the boat. It, it works for York because it's close by, 
uh, to the feedlots, and, but that's going to be a dying industry. So coming in, you weren't expecting that many mental health issues to be raised. What were you trying to you know, get your say on when, when you arrived here? Oh, I just wanted to say because Murray Watt said, oh, he's going to put more abattoir space in and he'll get a higher price for the sheep. But Fremantle's not a port uh, that's favourable by the shipping companies to pick up containers. Last year, they containers that had to be trucked across to Adelaide and Melbourne. So that's not going to likely to happen. He's not going to... He's going to have to wave a magic wand to make that happen. And to build an abattoir, we can't handle the sheep with what we've got. So he says, oh, building more abattoirs will give jobs for Australians. It won't because we don't have enough people to work on farms or anywhere else at the moment. There's a chronic labour shortage. So they'll have to become new Australians or migrant itinerant workers. And uh, where is he going to house them all? So is he going to build the houses to fit them in, build the abattoirs? Fix, build freezer spaces and fix up free metal so it's a popular port. So that was WA sheep producer Peter Boyle. So um, all of these impacts, it's not just going to be the sheep industry. The grain industry will be impacted as well and there is going to be flow-on effects because that's what sheep eat. They eat grains. So Mark Fowler, um, who is the president of the WA Farmers Grains Council, explains what this impact will look like. If we see the banning of the live sheep trade in Western Australia, we'll inevitably see uh, an erosion in the profitability of the sheep enterprise in, in businesses, and that will see a shift, an even stronger shift than, than we've seen in recent years into, into more cropping, um, and in many cases 100% cropping. That's going to put a lot more hectares in the ground, that's going to grow more grain. So we estimate this probably, we might see an extra million hectares planted, which will lead to another three to four million tonnes in the supply chain. Now, we've already seen what two 25 million tonne harvests have done for our supply chain, putting prices under a lot of pressure. This is only going to turn up the volume on that. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying, it, it is already under quite a little a bit of strain, the grain supply chain system, and an extra, what, up to three million tonnes coming into that system. I mean, it's difficult to cope, and obviously it has uh, price consequences too. Yes, it's already having price consequences. That's pretty well documented. More tonnes in the system. CBH are doing well, getting, staying ahead of it at the moment. But we have a CBH have a ten-year plan to invest in the grain supply chain so that they can outturn an average twenty-two million tonne harvest. If we, we've we've had two twenty-five million tonne harvests in a row now at the beginning of that ten years, and if you were to throw in an extra two to four million tonnes into that, then clearly that's going to make that a bit more difficult. What would be the other consequences of shutting down the live sheep trade here in WA? The second major consequence is that the lupin market, important rotational crop for many farmers, grain farmers um, around the state, 40 to 50% of the annual production of lupins gets consumed by the sheep industry locally. So um, you can, Economics 101, if half of the demand disappears locally for lupins, it's going to have a very serious price consequence for the lupin market, perhaps make that uneconomic. 
So that was the president of the WA Farmers Grains Council, Mark Fowler, speaking there. And this week, this consultation process has actually been pretty widely criticised. So this panel has eight weeks to investigate the on-farm impacts, the broader industry impacts. So that's right from the farm gate, right to the places that Australia imports to those countries. And also the agronomic impacts of shutting down the live sheep trade, all put into a report. Now, these sort of reports, they usually take up to a year to complete. So there's a big, I guess, discrepancy to what you would normally expect to see. Now, the other criticism leveled this week was that a lot of these farming communities weren't actually being told of these meetings as well. Philip Glide is the chair of the Live Sheep Phase-Out Panel, and he explains to Belinda Varischetti what exactly will be in this report. We're trying to identify what the economic financial impacts will be on all of the industry sectors that will be impacted by the phase out of the export of sheep by sea. And so we're expecting to have information, both agronomic information, what are the consequences for mixed farming systems? If you're no longer being able to get sheep off your farm, what do you do? Do you move into cropping? Do you, do you change the, the, your, the genetics in your, your sheep flock? They're the, those sort of things, plus then trying to estimate what the economic direct economic impacts are on the exporting industry but also on those associated um, sectors and also on the towns and communities that provide services to those industries so to the the people who provide fuel or uh, the diesel mechanic the IGA trying to get a bit of an estimate on that so we we've been tasked with trying to describe as best we can what those impacts will be because when we identify the impacts then we can look to target actions to try and offset those impacts. All right. Well, that sounds like a lot and it sounds like a pretty short time frame, sort of eight weeks roughly to complete a detailed report that I'm told would usually take sort of up to a year. Isn't that an insult to those communities who rely on the live sheep trade? No, I think we're trying to do the best we can. The other thing that we have, of course, is some studies that were commissioned not too long ago, you might recall that when the moratorium was put in place, there are a number of economic and financial studies that were done by three separate groups to look at the impact of that moratorium and scenarios where there was a fall of about 50% in the amount of sheep that would go overseas because of the, the moratorium of sailing during the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And so uh, we've got that information as a base and we think that we'll be able to get that done. But of course, we're not just relying on those studies because they are they're a big picture study what we're picking up from our discussions with grower groups and our discussions that we've been having for example this week is those impacts on individual farmers and each farming system is different no one no one farmer has the same system the criticism coming in loud and clear from rural communities in WA is this whole process of consultation is a sham from mm. the initial sort of secret meetings that were being held in WA this week, which were later adjusted and were open to the public, to this now rushed report on the economic and agronomic impacts on shutting down the trade. Is the panel just going through the motions? Certainly not. And we certainly heard that comment from um, over a thousand people that we'll have talked to this week, that they are concerned about that. And we've we've uh, listened to those those views. They weren't secret meetings. We were... We, we, we were uh, originally planning to just come out this time, given that it's a busy time here in WA with seeding. 
that we didn't want to impact too much on people's businesses already. So we sought to minimise that impact by going out to grower groups, sort of representatives of the various regions that we visited this week, so that we could get begin to get that understanding uh, of the impacts of the the likely impacts of the ban. That was Philip Glide, and he is the chair of the Live Sheep Phase Out Panel, talking to Belinda Varaschetti. You're listening to Countrywide. My name is Megan Hughes. Now, um, staying with live sheep exports for a little while longer, Australia is in this process at the moment, but it's something that has actually happened in New Zealand. And so the last live export shipment of livestock may have actually already left the country because the ban there is coming into place on April 30th. And Chair of Live Export New Zealand, Mark Willis, explains what is happening in their country. Obviously, pretty gutted. I think the reason that we're um, feeling so aggrieved is that the decision goes against the advice that was given to Cabinet by its ministry. So uh, there was a a review conducted into livestock exports by sea from New Zealand by the Ministry of Primary Industries. And and, uh, the advice that was given to Cabinet was that the risks of the industry could be you know, managed under a, a well-regulated system, the Australian system being held up as an example of, of how regulation um, can be effective in this area. But despite that, we had the timing of the Gulf Livestock 1 tragedy where a number of human and animal lives were lost and uh, the government of the day made what we think was a knee-jerk decision uh, based upon um, a marine tragedy uh, and that resulted in the, the ban of the industry. Do you feel like your industry not only lost the debate with government, you lost the debate with the hearts and minds, I suppose, of the, the wider public in New Zealand? So I think that what we what we know, because there was a, a lot of research that we did afterwards trying to, to understand how people feel about it, is that New Zealanders um, had concerns about the industry, but they also knew very, very little about it. And uh, a lot of those concerns were were based upon information that they were receiving from photos and, and things like that from activist organisations, which had, in many instances, a lot of media support, um, which weren't really an accurate portrayal of, of, of what was happening in terms of livestock export out of New Zealand. Um, but it was shaping their perceptions, and perhaps as an industry, we weren't, weren't doing enough to, um, to correct those perceptions. You hold out hope, this decision, even though it comes into effect on the 30th of this month, that it could one day be overturned? That's the indications that have been given to us by the by the opposition parties and so we have an election in, in, in October and if the government was to change we'll certainly be talking to them about how we can operate livestock export out of New Zealand. I was Chair of Live Export New Zealand, Mark Willis speaking there to Warwick Long. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. There's this long-standing perception in Australia, whether deserved or not, that cattle producers are tree clearers, but some are actually bucking this stereotype and focusing on planting trees back on their property. Driving through Melanie Leather's cattle property near Banana in central Queensland, 
It looks like a lot of others, wide open paddocks with pockets of trees. But over the next few decades, it'll be transformed. So what we're looking at doing is um, providing corridors that link remnant vegetation. And we're, we're wanting to do that for several reasons. One, we want to um, increase the biodiversity of our flora and fauna species on property. And we're also wanting to make sure that we can provide shade for our cattle in the future. Ms Leather has partnered with Fitzroy Basin Association to plant these trees. The corridor spans 10 hectares and is comprised of 12 different species. Experts from um, FBA brought out biologists that could give us the right planting advice and they selected a range of trees that they thought would be suitable and then we went through them and just made sure that we were happy with those varieties being on property. So some of the trees we've got are different types of um, gums, we've got balar, uh, we've got some figs, bottle trees, uh, white cedars, um, quite a nice diversity of species. It's not been without its challenges. Half of the plantings on Miss Leather's property died due to weather and being eaten by animals. This project is part of a wider program run by the Natural Resource Management Group and they're working with four landholders to roll it out. A senior project manager, Hannah Kaluzinski, explains. FBA's project currently covers 30 hectares, which might not seem like a large amount, but um, the landscapes that we work in are very, very difficult to grow trees. It's not as simple as just planting them in your back garden. They're often really tough and dry and require a lot of maintenance and work from the landholders to get them established. So the idea is that we're just using a small amount of area at the moment, but by learning the lessons of the do's and don'ts and what's a plant and how challenging it can be, we're going to be able to scale that up to the region. In 2018, the Queensland government strengthened legislation to crack down on tree clearing on farming properties. And since this legislation, the amount of trees cleared in Queensland has significantly reduced. According to the annual statewide land cover and tree study, it showed tree clearing had fallen nearly 40%. But World Wildlife Fund conservation scientist Dr Stuart Blanche said it's still not enough. The SLATS report shows that there's some very good progress, but we still have 418,000 hectares of land clearing in 2019-20. That is a very, very, very large area, and that number has to come way down. But how we do it, I think it means coming together between environment and beef uh, industry Uh, representatives and try to find some commonality. While Dr Blanche wants to see tighter legislation, he said projects like this one are encouraging. I think they're great and they're happening all around Australia and many parts of the world um, to a greater or lesser extent. We need to do more of that. You know, I think we should be aiming for a um, sort of a national goal of maybe reforesting maybe 10 million hectares in the next decade. It's certainly possible. Um, The good news is that Um, A lot of regrowth is happening across Australia, maybe up to about half a million hectares a year. It's unclear what's driving it. A lot of it will be just natural regrowth as, you know, land land use has changed, um, following, you know, good uh, learning your rainfall events, etc. So planting trees is a key part of it. The association has received a share of $11 million in state government funding to expand the program. They're now looking at assisted regrowth methods, so letting trees grow from the natural seed bank on each property. This is something Cameron Gibson has been doing on his property at Coonabar near Rolston for decades. It strengthens your operation, so having a diverse ecosystem helps your property 
through different times, whether it's through the wet times, through the dry times. Um, and then you take that biodiversity, then you put it in with our time control grazing system that enables us to manage our grass in a way that um, helps our animal production and, and our business to move forward. So in seasons like this, when it's, it's wet, we can put more cattle on, we can run our country a lot harder, we have a higher carrying capacity, therefore we can have a higher stocking rate. The Fitzroy Basin Association is using Mr Gibson's property as a success story of incorporating native trees into an agricultural production system. And while it'll be years before Ms Leather's property has as much tree coverage as Mr Gibson's, she's already looking forward to the future. I think everything has a purpose and does something for our environment. I mean, particularly in our area, we've had a lot of problems with pasture dieback. Well, and it's been very hard for them to pinpoint exactly what's made that happen. And so you start to think, you know, is it is it because we need to increase diversity of our plant and animal species? Um, what are the side effects of that decreasing biodiversity in the environment? So, um, and I think, you know, it, it's not just a problem here in central Queensland, it's a global problem. So um, I think globally people are starting to look at how they can address it. Um, and it's an important part of our sustainability story is to um, show that we're doing work in that space to try and um, make improvements. That was Central Queensland cattle grazier Melanie Leather ending that report. And that's it for Countrywide this week. You can hear all of these stories and more at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Megan Hughes. Goodbye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.